Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. You know, before we jump into the hour, I just want to thank all of you who contributed uh, to our pledge drive, our funding appeals uh, over the, you know, a couple weeks ago already. Uh, I forgot to mention it last week, uh, but thanks, especially all of you who contributed to this program. Uh, thank you very much. And of course, you can do so if you haven't or you want to contribute a little bit more. You can go to the wrtfm.org website uh, and do that. <clears throat> Our guest today is the political historian, medical doctor, and ethicist Eli Merritt. Eli is a specialist in the timely topic of demagogues and democracy and the role of ethical leadership in the pre- preservation and maintenance of constitutional democracy. Dr. Merritt completed his BA in history at Yale, an MA in ethics at Yale, uh, and an MD at Case Western Reserve. He's the editor of the just released How to Save Democracy, Inspiration and Advice from 95 World Leaders, and prior to that, the the collection The Curse of Demagogues, Lessons Learned from the Presidency of Donald J. Trump. His disunion among ourselves, the perilous politics of the American Revolution, is due out in June. His commentaries have appeared in numerous outlets, among them the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the New York Daily News, USA Today, and the International Herald Tribune, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Well, welcome to WRT, Eli Merritt. Great to be with you, Alan. Eli Merritt, one of your areas of focus, your area of focus really, has been the vulnerability of democracies. They're hollowing out or undermining by demagogues, historically and in our contemporary world. Let's start with your understanding of that widely used word demagogue and demagoguery. What do you mean when you use the term demagogue? Um, I'm, I'm glad we're beginning with this uh, because the I think the message that I have been trying to impart over the past year or years that's most important it has to do precisely with the dangers of demagogues to democracy. <clears throat> and I'll say a bit more about it in a moment. But a lecture I've been giving called Alexander Hamilton's Theory of Democratic Collapse. But when we use the word uh, demagogue, uh, we are referring to a political actor who uses techniques, uh, rhetorical techniques of bigotry, fear mongering, hate mongering, scapegoating, and division. Uh, obviously not for the betterment of society, but for the, in the attempt to attain power and fame for the demagogue, him or herself. That is the historic, most historic concept of what a demagogue is. But if I do now, uh, I think enter into the, the Alexander Hamilton's theory of democratic collapse, the subtitle uh, of that is, is a president 
commences a demagogue and ends a tyrant. The other thing that we find with demagogues is they enter into a political power already with moral compasses that do not operate well. But then when they gain power, power does to them what power does to all people, which is it corrupts. And so the thrust there is that the demagogue tends to decline into worsening authoritarianism with power. So that is, in a nutshell, what Hamilton's theory was based on Federalist One, where he warned, beware demagogues because they commence demagogues and they end tyrants. So that is the great danger to democracy is we think that a demagogue is nothing more than a mere gadfly. They gain office and then amazingly and paradoxically, the demagogue elected through democratic means breaks down and can even destroy or turn into a sham democracy. What was before that a thriving or functional democracy. I want to stay with that a little bit. That is the demagogue, the demagogue's use of democratic institutions and structures in order to undermine them. Uh, the, mm-hmm. That hollowing, I used the term earlier, of hollowing out um, the most authoritarian uh, dictatorships often have, have historically had a facade of institutional democracy. Courts, courts are maintained, parties are maintained, uh, uh, but it's all hollowed out. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's where, and we have, we have, we have lived this in a significant manner uh, since 2016. Well, I think one easy way to visualize uh, what happens, and this is not obviously just in the United States in our recent history, but if you go back and you study uh, the history of democracy all the way back to Athens in the fifth century onward through Roman democracy and others, the idea here is the demagogue unfortunately gains power through the manipulation of the people, through high promises, through activating not better angels, but lesser angels. But then the, vis- the, the visual that's helpful is, and then once the demagogue gets into power, imagine the demagogue has a sledgehammer and there is built around the demagogue uh, uh, constitutional structures such as the rule of law, checks and balances, and all th- also fundamentally ethical norms. Well, the demagogue begins to take a sledgehammer to those. Why? Because the demagogue in particular with authoritarian instincts does not like to submit to any form of authority higher than the demagogue self, which there's a whole fascinating conversation to be had around the personality structure of demagogues. So the demagogue will, because the demagogue recognizes rapidly, you know, things that are trying to constrain me, uh, such as the rule of law and ethical norms, they need to be broken down so I can be on top. So there, and that has to do obviously with corruption of the judiciary as well, corruption as we saw with Trump of, of secretaries of states. So I like to think also of a demagogue, or I like to think of a democracy, if we visualize sort of a royal room, almost like the monarch has, and in the, there can be beautiful draperies and there's a throne. But in a democracy, the thing on the throne is a constitution. And so the first thing the demagogue likes to do is to go into the throne room, tear out the constitution and sit on the throne, him or herself as the king. It's a well-known pattern in the history of democracies. You're listening to Dr. Eli Merritt, political historian, medical doctor, and ethicist. We're talking today about democracy and demagoguery. We'll be opening up, per usual, opening up the telephone line at the half hour. If you want to join us, 
in a bit with a question, a comment, an observation for our guest today. Give us a call at 608-256-2001. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned, of course, 2016, and you mentioned Donald Trump. Uh, let's focus in on, on Donald Trump for a little bit. Already in a May 2021 L.A. Times op-ed, you wrote that while Trump is not going away, he will eventually be showcased in decades to come as the greatest symbol of American demagoguery of all times. What what might make that so in your estimation? Well, I think when I, I think that was one of the concluding paragraphs. And I think it was perhaps a moment when I was filled with great hope about what was going to happen in our democracy. And that is, we are a, a strong ethical constitutional democracy. And this is a tremendous setback while we are trying to learn how to manage and master uh, internet technology and disinformation. I still do believe that that will be the outcome. Uh, it is the history of demagogues to, as it's written, fade away. I don't want to suggest that as uh, a reason to be complacent uh, because it takes hard work by ethical political leaders and hard work by ethical citizens to at some point recognize demagoguery and disinformation for what they are and to combat them forcefully. So, but the other part of what I was suggesting there is that we've had demagogues in our country before, very pernicious demagogues. One of the worst was Father Coughlin, a, a Catholic radio priest who practiced extraordinary bigotry and anti-Semitism in the, in the 1930s. Um, and we've had Huey Long and Joe McCarthy. Uh, but I think it's important to recognize Donald Trump is certainly the first demagogue who's gotten into the White House. And, and that is perilous in itself because it is the seat of power but he's also a mega demagogue. He is very talented at what he does and very dangerous in what he does, as we have seen and we know, with regard to demagoguery stirring political violence. But I think to answer your question, that, that, that summation of that piece was a expression of hope that we will gather our wits, that we will restore ethical media and ethical leadership and we'll look back on Donald, this period of Donald Trump as being a stupendous, remarkable, sad and tragic uh, past period of what that article is. I think the name of it is the Supreme American Demagogue. He will go down in that. There is no doubt in my mind he will go down in that history. Talk about Trump's methods, uh, the, th the things that he had, has and continues to mobilize uh, in order to forward the agenda, his agenda, the agenda of those uh, closely wedded to him. Yeah, I think there's in some ways two methods. <clears throat> and the first method is simply that of demagoguery. And he has learned that an aspect of demagoguery, which is bullying, he has learned how to weaponize uh, language and speech and emotion and sort a, a development in those who are close to him of black and white thinking and, and us versus them thinking and the other as the enemy, which clearly almost every time Trump opens his mouth or writes something on, on social media, there is this idea of the other as this as a dangerous enemy. So the methods are fascinatingly enough, and this is another thing I believe we're going to need to study for decades to come, 
is that the demagogue uses free speech in order to divide and harm a democracy. So that's the first methodology. Then the other is, uh, is, is cheating and deceiving, manipulating. We don't know, we, 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 we see what, what Trump says, but what we don't see is what happens in his private meetings. And that other part is the more authoritarian aspect of a demagogue. I believe that you know all demagogues are authoritarians or are incipient authoritarians, but not all authoritarians have the talent or genius has been which has been written about about Trump, the genius of demagoguery. Um, but as we've seen with the January sixth committee, what that committee really did was unearth the the fact that this was not uh, simply demagogic rhetoric that came from Trump that led, unfortunately, to these outcomes such as the attack on the U.S. Capitol, we see the authoritarian part of it, which was it was planned, it was intended, that there that an auto coup of the U.S. government was Donald Trump's intentions and plans. So that's the other the other method. The other method, perhaps, we can describe as just a sheer unconstitutional method, which, which has been written about uh, demagogues is do anything and everything you can to further your agenda, which is the agenda of the self, but just don't get caught. That's the other method. There's no ethical compass. There's no moral compass in the demagogue that submits to, again, higher authorities, whether constitutions or codes of ethics or democratic norms. I want to come back to, you know, you referenced just a, a moment ago, Huey Long and Joe McCarthy and, and Father Coughlin. But in the article that we're, I'm drawing from it at this moment, you mentioned a couple of others, uh, one that I was vaguely familiar with and another, a couple, um, uh, a husband and wife team. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, but I, I wanted to, you know, just, you know, acquaint her moment, to, you know, just for a moment, and acquaint our listeners with Theodore Bilbo or, and or James and Miriam Ferguson. Well, I, I, I will try. You have the article right in front of you, so you might be able to do that. I think I wrote that over a year ago, and they are lesser demagogues, so I don't have that information at the forefront of my mind, but I will tell you that one of them was a talented demagogue from Mississippi who, uh, it, it very reminiscent of, of Trump, who, but, but also a bit more reminiscent of Huey Long, which promised people economic benefit to him being in government, but through very crooked means. And so he was impeached, I believe twice, like Trump, but he was finally convicted and disbarred from office. And so what he did, remarkably, he still wanted to have power. So he got behind, and his cronies, we'll call them, got behind putting his wife up for governor and then she won <laughs> so he was back in the governor's mansion uh I, I believe it would be fair to say that he was the operator behind his wife as governor but he got a third term in that method which was quite remarkable so that was so that was the uh, texas husband and wife gubernatorial team uh, james and miriam ferguson uh i mentioned mississippi's uh, governor bilbo theodore theodore bilbo What's key there, I think, and, and trails right to the present, is Bilbo, as was the case with so many other uh, Southern Democratic 
well, demagogues, uh, utilized white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah, the, ra the race baiting. And I think that I'm glad you're emphasizing that because if we look back at the history of demagogues, it is perhaps not an exclusive universal finding, but it's a near universal finding that this idea of the creation of the other as dangerous to the uh, way of life of the dominant group, in this case, you're describing white Southerners. And we can look at Hitler, who clearly is well known to have begun a demagogue and ended a murderous tyrant. He, of course, used not just one group, but many groups, but the most important was his anti-Semitism towards Jews. So it's remarkable. I haven't really given a lot of thought to the evolutionary reasons behind it, but that could be an interesting area of exploration. But it, if you want people to vote for you or support you, uh, one means of doing that is saying your sorrows, your pains are due to them. This works. And one reason it works is if you get right down to it, all people have pains and sorrows and feelings of depri deprivation. So this mechanism is very, very common. The use of xenophobia, threats of immigrant takeover of nation or country or uh, abuse of daughters and wives. This stuff has been used since time immemorial by demagogues. So he practiced that that very skill that that uh, has been seen in Donald Trump, which is xenophobia and either overt or implicit uh, descriptions of threat to the white uh, superstructure of this nation. There, of course, could be a, a longer, more odious Trump legacy. Uh, that is the, the, the reality that ascendant, aspirant contenders for the presidency, um, such well, obviously, uh, people like Ron DeSantis, for instance, continue to draw from Trump's demagogic playbook? Yes, I think well, one way I think of what you're describing now is Trump. We often think, well, what's the matter with these people? They're supporting Trump and they're saying these things and they're doing these things. I, I think we have to recognize that all human beings are followers. Most, most of us are followers. And the way I view this is, sadly, Trump was, uh, through our presidential nominating system, Trump was released upon the people of this country, and he corrupted and made the worst, so to speak, of his political base. And that's something that will need, hopefully, to be reversed some, some way, is back to a more normal ethical politics. But now you have the base that is elected Trump, 30% or more, is it has certain expectations of candidates uh, who are running for president. And so, sadly, Ron DeSantis or any other is having to play to this base that is, again, had the baser angels of their nature activated uh, by Trump. And so I think Ron DeSantis is doing that. And that brings us into, uh, if Ron DeSantis were running for president right now, we might see something very different. And the way I, the reason I say that is he is running for the presidential nomination of the Republican Party. And that means he has to compete in these primaries. And this brings us to, I think, one of the most significant areas of reform over the next several decades. One of the most significant is media. We have to get codes of ethics back into media. Uh, but the other is our presidential nominating system 
is a total mess. I think it's a complete failure. Some serious mistakes were made back in the early 70s in reforming it, where there are no checks and balances in the system at all to prevent demagogues and authoritarians from taking over the party. And that's what we've seen uh, with Trump. So I am hopeful that we will find ways to have our primaries. But for example, the primary voters could be electing delegates, not presidential candidates, so that we can return more to the model of representative democracy rather than direct democracy in all cases. Our presidential election is a direct democracy, but we need some sort of safety valve or filtration system that makes certain, 100% certain that no Republican party or no Democratic party ever puts up candidates for president who are not certain to adhere to the rule of law, are not certain to adhere to their oath of office, are not certain to adhere to the Constitution and free and fair elections and a peaceful tr presidential transfer of power. These have to become litmus tests in terms of who our party is allowing to emerge as their presidential candidates. You're listening to Eli Merritt, political historian, medical doctor, and ethicist. Again, we're talking about demagogues and the challenge, the threat, if you will, uh, to democracy. You know, we can open up the lines if you want to get, give us a call at 608-256-2001 with a question, a comment, an observation for Eli Merritt. Give us a call. Again, 608-256-2001. Trump himself, of course, has not gone away at this point. Uh, he's still, he, well, at this point, he imagines himself a viable contender, and lots of people think he is. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> Trump's speech earlier this I'm wondering if you followed or, or read Trump's speech earlier this month at the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, this CPAC conference. Um, he had some amazing quotes in there. He, it was full-blown Trump, and I wonder if you caught any of that. I, I saw some of that. It's been some time. What What are the specific ones you have in mind? Well, I mean, the language is, is magnificent as far as a case study. Uh, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. Right? Yeah. Uh, or for seven years, you and I have been engaged in an epic struggle to rescue our country from the people who hate it and want to absolutely destroy it. Trump said at one point he accused he while accusing sinister forces of trying to turn America into a socialist dumping ground for criminals, junkies, Marxist thugs, radicals and dangerous refugees that no other country wants. Just astounding. Well, you've just elucidated with examples what we were speaking of earlier. Those are perfect examples of how a demagogue uh, operates. There's a sense of danger, 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 us versus them, us versus them. And Trump has you know, continued uh, to practice uh, that manner of political manipulation. And we do, I do think we see there, I, I think the, the wisest people are worried that Trump will secure the, the nomination again. Uh, but I think we're seeing that Trump does not uh, have other tricks in his in his bag, and it's I believe he's weakening in many many regards. And I'll just say that I'm very gratified to see the rule of law 
threatening Trump right now. The rule of law has to overcome corrupt criminal behavior. And so as, as we ask ourselves, well, what hope is there against the demagogues? Unfortunately, it's slow in coming, but we have magnificent things happening right now in the Manhattan uh, District Attorney and in Georgia and then Jack Smith's special counsel. And I think that, that they're, they're, those prosecutors, they have sort of two key objectives. One is they want to adhere to the rule of law and execute the rule of law on the surface of all matters. They also, I think, recognize, importantly, that democracy is under threat and they are guardians of not only the rule of law, but the entire democracy. And they recognize, like many of us do, that Trump is the greatest threat to the Constitution, the greatest threat to our democracy, who has ever been elected into public office. So I think they're, they're operating under those two principles of, of saving our democracy and at the same time adhering closely to the rule of law. Uh, so I just kind of found myself going into hopeful areas. The other hopeful area for us is reform of our media and I, it's, it will be necessary. We have no choice. We have to reform our media if we don't want to have chaos and political violence in this country. Uh, you know, Eli Mirrod, at that uh, CPAC, CPAC conclave, uh, there was <laughs> present at it was were a number of international leaders, among them uh, Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro. Last year at the same uh, annual meeting, uh, fe- the featured speaker, a featured speaker, was Hungary's far-right Prime Minister, Viktor Orban. Might you comment on how the far-right movements draw from each other? It's, to me, a kind of, a kind of fascist symbiosis, really, an international, you know, something else is going on internationally where they appear to be aligning with each other. Yeah, that's a very, very sad thing. And I, I don't believe we'll, we, we've ever found such a thing in our history before, except for some underground events that happened in the period uh, leading up to World War II, when there was a sort of underground Nazi support in this country. Um, you know, that is something that must be combated as well at the domestic level and also internationally. And now you're, of course, bringing my mind to uh, the book uh, that was published um, March 14th uh, uh, from based on quotations from the Summit for, for Democracy, How to Save Democracy, which you brought up at the beginning. And that's what Biden is doing. Biden is recognizing that there's domestic threat to democracy, but there's also international threat. So he has brought together in December of 2021 more than 100 leaders to discuss how they can unite together in order to better understand democracy and better defend it against tyranny. Uh, but the, it's a true threat. I don't, and, and it was brought about again, where it seems like we're picking on Trump, but maybe that's okay. Trump is the first president in our history who has clearly demonstrated his own personal alignment with autocratic leaders, authoritarian leaders, and demagogic leaders throughout the world. He, it's, it's logical based on how his personality works and what his political style is. So those are forces that we must combat very strongly. And it is obviously very concerning that the Republican Party, not only Donald Trump, but the Republican Party seems itself to be sliding 
more and more into a type of uh, uh, Orban uh, authoritarianism. There's a concept called constitutional hardball, which is being practiced there as the first movement into authoritarianism. And we're seeing this in individuals like Ron DeSantis as well. And constitutional hardball means, as I allude to, you, you do anything and everything you can shy of getting in trouble with the law in order to advance your policies, shattering all democratic norms and ethical norms. Jay tells me that we have, well, we have one caller who has a question offline. That is, they didn't want to be on the air. So let's start with that. Uh, Caller Chris asked, how do we get, you know, we're touching on this, of course, we're dancing around this. How do we get rid of these demagogues? Does the population rise up against them? Do they just poof? uh, (laughs) I guess guess he meant, you know, just disappear, go, go up in smoke, uh, poof out of existence. How, how do we get rid of well, that? Well, I think the, the first step, uh, as, as in other areas of inquiry, uh, is we have to understand, there's a, there's a great quotation in the book, How to Save Democracy, that came from the first summit. And it's the president of Lithuania who, in describing what the purpose of the summit was, said, we are all gathered here at this summit to deepen our understanding of how democracy works and how tyranny happens. So I think that's the, uh, the sort of the first thing that we can all do or how we get rid of demagogues is to understand that they in fact are the Achilles heel of democracy so that we can early on identify red flags and recognize that although some of what's uh, being said might feel appealing in some ways, this tendency, this, this demagoguery does end up slipping into authoritarianism, which imperils the entire uh, democracy. The other is, I alluded to earlier, is reforming the presidential nominating system. We, we, political parties should have great strength in order to, to essentially veto candidates who might try and come through those parties who are demagogues, who are authoritarians, who seem unwilling and unlikely to support free and fair elections and the peaceful transfer of power. So education, understanding democracy, reform of the presidential uh, nominating system. And the other that we must move to, I alluded to earlier, is, you know, the demagogue is the, the, the artist in some ways that puts out this dreadful form of art. But then it is the media that picks up on that and amplifies it. So more ethical amplifiers would simply not for profit, as we find in all of our media, except for good media like we're on today here with Alan, is based upon making money. And Fox News is the worst of the worst of it. It's a it's an organization that's geared towards um, uh, profit making demagoguery is one way to think about that. So we, we have to stand up. We have to demand ethical uh, leadership within the media. And we can expand our under, we can expand, in fact, limitations on this beautiful, critical thing, which we call constitutional free speech, where we try and limit hate speech more, demagoguery more, defamation more, incitement of violence. And I think on social media, we're very interested in privacy controls, but we will have to in the future, if we want to have a peaceful nation, have things akin to more incitement to violence controls. We'll have to have more things such as anti-defamation controls. So I think we're in the wild west of this whole thing. 
it will depend upon critical institutions of our democracy to basically just say no to demagoguery. We are not going to permit it. We're not going to let it come through our airways, and we're not going to let it come through our political parties. Uh, Jade, our producer for this hour, uh, tells me that we do have a caller on online with a comment or question. Hi, Mel, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I want to thank you for this extremely important and, and um, critic, timely critical discussion. Um, I'm interested in your speaker's thoughts on the current situation in Nicaragua as an illustration, I think, of what he is talking about, particularly in reference to the the couple who manipulated the American legal system, political system, uh, to share office illegally. Um, at the end of the Nicaraguan Revolution, and I spent part part of three winters in a row in uh, 2016, 17, and 18 as a medical volunteer in Nicaragua uh, with a small aid organization. And it, at the end of the um, Sandinista Revolution, Daniel Ortega, the leader of the Sandinistas, became president. Uh, term limits um, and uh, disfavor put him out of office after one term, then after that term, he, uh, Violeta Chamorro was elected, then he came back as president, then he was put out for term limits, and he put his wife in his place of pro-election, and she was elected, then he came back to power, now in his uh, third or fourth term, um, clearly manipulating the system. I'm just wondering what your uh, speaker's thoughts are on, on this, and thanks again for this great program. Thank you, caller. Well, my thoughts there are, it makes me really think of the relationship between disinformation, demagoguery, corruption, and then we can talk about constitutional hardball and um, the endpoint of authoritarianism and autocracy. Uh, what you're describing to me is a process of corruption and it's similar to what happened to, in our country with, with, uh, with Donald Trump. If once, once those who do not adhere to ethical standards and ethical norms get into office, there is a corrupting influence that happens, and that's what you're describing in Nicaragua. So it, 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 it really makes me think too of a fundamental um, misunderstanding that I think exists widely in the world about democracy. And that is most people think of what democracy is, is a system where the people go to the polls, and they elect representatives, and then there's an invisible hand that's going to hold the democracy together through the adversarial process of, uh, of, of, of parties and branches of government. But there are more cornerstones, free and fair elections, and the will of the people are only one fundamental cornerstone of democracy. There are others that are co-equally important, and those are the rule of law, checks and balances, and the last one, which is the most poorly understood, is ethical leadership. Democracy does not survive over history without ethical leaderships. James, James Madison at one point in the 1780s actually said, the entire purpose of our constitutional structure is to try and make sure that those who rise to power in the government are ethical. So we need to get back to and understand these fundamentals and reform our democracy 
and also in Nicaragua, reform our democracy in whatever way we need to, to make sure that vastly more than the preponderance of leaders within our government are ethical. I'll, I'll, I'll throw out one analogy that I like, and that is imagine in a democracy that it, the citizens are horses. And it's pretty well understood that in this society of horses, you need to make certain within government that only those who get into the government are tamed and domesticated horses, not wild horses, because it's understood the wild horses will destroy the government. Well, what we happen, what we what, what what happened in this country with regard to Donald Trump is a wild horse got into the federal government, not a tame horse, not a domesticated horse. And now we're opening the corral of our government more and more and saying we should allow wild horses in. Well, it just doesn't work. Even if they're even if they're democratically elected wild horses, it will never work. Wild horses will bring down the democracy. Let's squeeze in another caller and then there's a few more Questions I hope to get to. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, Joanne, hi. Uh, you're on the air. Thanks for the great presentation. Uh, I'm wondering about third parties and, and fourth parties, whatever, fifth parties, how many other parties. We have a, <laughs> a two-party a two a two party system that has defined uh, what democracy is for most, most young people growing up who've never seen uh, a functioning third party in action. And I'm just wondering... Um, the possibility of of Trump or another one of these authoritarian figures at some point uh, getting together a third party movement is 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 always lurking behind the scenes. And I'm just wondering, could you uh, could your uh, very wonderful uh, guest expound a little bit more on what a third party uh, system would do to open up our otherwise very controlled, very contained um, uh, semblance of a democracy? Thanks so much. Thank you, Joanne. Well, I, I think you're right to say that for a long time, third parties have been a very weak force in our democracy. And, you know, my bias is, is that <clears throat> third parties that would grow under the leadership of unethical, demagogic, perhaps authoritarian individuals in the United States is a threat that we would want to uh, counter in the ways that we've been talking about uh, today. There is an opportunity also for third parties. Um, it makes me think of Liz Cheney, who has said that she will do anything, and she is an, an incredible example of ethical leadership in our country. Stunning example of ethical leadership in our country, even if you deplore a lot of her policies. So I, I actually believe she's on the sidelines right now, wondering what she's going to do. And it is there, perhaps there's some ambition and ego involved in what she's doing, but I'm absolutely convinced that somewhat in the spirit of someone like Abraham Lincoln, she's, she is motivated by the defense of our democracy. And so she might launch a third party, a conservative party. And this, you know, the, the talk of the town is, you know, why are you going to do this? It's not going to be, it's going to be weak. It's not going to be successful. But I believe that we need for people to step up and do the right thing and at least get these ethical voices out there. Keep, keep keeping. If we could have the, the voice and influence of someone like Liz Cheney and, and of course, Biden and Schumer as well. But we, we need someone within that party to to for that the vo that voice to go out with equal strength and force across the airwaves. Uh, that is one solution. We need the people to, people are persuaded by what they hear. 
And so I think her, if she does become a candidate for the presidency, she's going to get a lot more time on the air and her messages, which are critically important, will gain more currency. So there, you're right. There's a lot of reasons why the two parties we have now are entrenched and it's very difficult for third parties to rise up. But in the reforms that we should embark upon, I, I fully support more voices, more uh, parties and in complicated ways, if we could ever get to more coalition government like the parliamentary systems have, there would be benefit to that as well. Eli Merritt in an L.A. Times op-ed piece that appeared in last August, you argued that, quote, democracy can be upended by demagogues when political party gatekeepers do not block their ascent to power. That when gatekeepers fail in this critical duty, democracies deteriorate in a process well known to political philosophers throughout history. Talk about gate gatekeepers. Who are or who would be the gatekeepers? Democracy needs gatekeepers for the reasons that we've described to keep out the wild horses. And in fact, when the uh, our presidential uh, election system was devised in the Constitution, as everyone knows, they created an electoral college whose overriding purposes, there are many motivations behind it, but overriding purposes was in fact to keep out demagogues, to keep out the wild uh, horses. That rapidly within several decades proved that it was not a successful, uh, but what we had that arose in the place of the electoral college system for filtering out the wild horses was is political parties and so from the, the 1790s and early part of the 19th century political parties because they had i think an a, a built-in ethical structure to them they automatically did not allow this there were no primaries back then of course they elevated candidates who were in the main constitutional and ethical well in the early 1970s for understandable reasons but now in retrospect we see that it was folly we got rid of the gatekeeping function of the political parties for, for president, for, for presidential nominees. And it took 50 years for a demagogue like Trump to exploit the, this new presidential nominating system, but that was done. I think what most every expert I have spoken to and every expert citizen I have ever spoken to agrees is, if the Republican party had not been reformed to have direct primaries, the Democratic party too, Donald Trump never would have been president. So if we had allowed the delegates in the convention, the 2016 Republican National Convention, to actually exercise their own judgment within the nominating convention, Donald Trump never would have gotten into power. And that is vitally important. Donald Trump never getting into presidential power is the most important thing that could have happened that would have caused strengthening in our democracy today. Um, so that and the other pieces, Republicans could stand up from the perspective of simply moral courage. There's a sort of institutional structure of gatekeeping that can that can work. But also Republicans early on could have stood up and said, no, not Trump. This man is a demagogue. Some of them did actually say this. Lindsey Graham said this in 2016 or 15. I can't remember which one now. But he ultimately uh, ended up sacrificing his morals for uh, for, for political power. So moral courage, Republicans can still do that today. More Republicans could still stand up against Trump today. And then we could have institutional gatekeeping restored to our political parties. 
when I read those passages in, in that essay about gatekeeping, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I, I began to think that you actually raised a vexing contradiction or dilemma that some would point to, uh, that this gatekeeping by political parties uh, itself is uh, anti-democratic. What do you what do you say to them? What do you what would you say to me? I, uh, this is a question that came to me. Yes, I think that's a great question. And I, I think if you're working from a premise of direct democracy or pure democracy in the Athenian mold from the 5th century BC, which proved not to work very well for some of the reasons we've been discussing today, it only worked for 100 years. And then after that, it, it declined. And the, and the Romans came along and decided we need more complex forms of democracy and more democracy that is representative democracies. So if you look at this appearing anti-democratic impulse, which says, well, there is a subclass of citizens which we are not going to allow to get into office, and it is demagogues and, and wild horses, it seems anti-democratic, but it only seems anti-democratic until we recognize, again, another fundamental cornerstone of democracy. One is elections, Another is the rule of law. Another is checks and balances. And another is ethical leadership. So we must have checks and balances at every level of the democratic process. And by instilling political parties as a source of check and balance against demagogues and authoritarians, we are simply practicing excellent representational democracy. And not pure democracy, I'll grant you that, but truly excellent representational democracy. Um, you said in that essay, and you've said it here on, on the year, that the leaders of both parties must embrace their duty to thwart uh, corrupt politicians at every turn. <clears throat> Might that be a bit of wishful thinking uh, on your part? That is, based on the current state and composition of the Republican Party, it appears that the GOP has been moving in the opposite direction, away from the far away from the path you pro you propose. Yes, I think you're right, but I'm I'm making <clears throat> reference to perhaps the Republican Party that was. There is there is an expectation that the party will be more ethical than the individual. And there is the expectation that a group of individuals, in this case, two thousand or slightly more, two thousand delegates that are in one way or the other elected or appointed by a political party, that those, those people coming together in a, in a model of representational democracy within a political party will be less likely to promote a, a demagogue or authoritarian than a direct democracy where the demagogue directly manipulates the people in order to get elected. But you are right, if we get a corrupt political party that is composed of more than a majority of individuals who are religious adherents, so to speak, of the demagogue or authoritarian, that their party would not uh, counteract the demagogue or authoritarian. Nevertheless, uh, the principle still uh, is golden, and that is political parties are charged by our democracy with the most fundamental job, most fundamental role of counteracting the rise demagogues, authoritarians, and what some people have just called corruptors. So if they're not doing their job, they're not doing their job. But still, in our system, at least, those fundamental gatekeepers are within the political parties. And the other arm of that as well is the media has gatekeeping responsibilities as well. 
that brings us, of course, as we begin to head toward the end of the hour, unfortunately, that brings us to your recently released title that you've mentioned previously, How to Save Democracy. Tell our listeners a bit more about it, its purpose or intent, um, and its origins as a call to rescue democracy. This book came about uh, because I am always trying to learn more about democracy and learn diverse attitudes and teachings about democracy. And Biden-Harris administration uh, sponsored the first Summit for Democracy in December of 2021. And I tuned in and noticed some important things were being said. But then I also noticed not only important things were being said, really beautiful things were being said, poetic things were being said. That reminded me of some of my own books of quotations of Lincoln and MLK. And I began to jot them down. And finally uh, recognized in some ways um, impelled by Biden, who said, this is the year of action after this summit for democracy. And I just, I'll briefly describe, it was the gathering of more than 100 world leaders to come together for many, many purposes, but most importantly, to unite globally against the advance of authoritarianism and disinformation, but also uh, domestically. So as part of that, there was a call to action to citizens who wanted to get involved and certainly also to the world leaders of a year of action. So I decided that these uh, quotations from the first summit were once again valuable from the perspective of understanding how democracy works, but they're also a place of comfort to turn for inspiration and hope behind democracy. It gave me a lot of hope um, to listen to these uh, speeches and then to compile this book. It's a slightly over 400 quotations broken down into various categories. And many people have said it's really one of the best instruments of learning about democracy that they have because it's so simple. You don't have to read a textbook. You can just sort of flip open to any page and you see core principles. And I would say about half the quotations are truly po poetic as well. So they, they really lighten the spirit. That book lays out, you lay out, six key principles of democracy as we get toward the end of the hour. Maybe just list those. Uh, well, I'll, I'll list a few and then maybe sort of focus on some of the core ones. Get involved. Uh, uh, hold leaders accountable. The rule of law is paramount. Uh, democracy is of, by, and for the people, and it must stay that way. And a couple of others. But I would say that the first one there is to get involved in democracy. And, and it seems like every week I receive an email or a communication from someone saying, you know, the key to this thing is all hands, all hands on deck. And I agree to that. But I also want to say that I also sympathize and understand that so many people are sympathetic to the idea, but they think, well, what, what can I do? I mean, I don't have time for this. I don't know what to do. So I think we need to appreciate that a lot of people might be inclined to get involved, but don't know how or don't know why exactly. And I would say to those individuals, um, the one thing you can do is to learn more about democracy. You don't have to decide you're going to get involved and make a difference necessarily. But studying democracy is a fascinating thing. I, 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 I continue to be very excited about studying democracy and learning more. I'm always learning. So wherever it is about whether it's on YouTube or or by getting a book like this, How to Save Democracy or other wonderful inspirational um, 
collections that teach about democracy and create hope at the same time, such as Abraham Lincoln's collection of speeches. And the way to identify that is it's uh, the, uh, the person who wrote the introduction is Gore, Gore Vidal. And another one that's at my uh, bedside that has helped me over the years is a wonderful collection of speeches and writings of MLK called A Testament of Hope. Uh, and How to Save Democracy is uh, by more than uh, 90 world leaders, and it serves a similar function. So don't be intimidated. Don't, they don't need to rush to get involved. First, learn about democracy. But there are things, of course, there are things we can do individually and collectively. The one challenge I like to put to folks which a book like this can help with in terms of uh, advancement and growth is every the thing that everyone can do through a profound amount of soul searching is do not hate your fellow Americans. We can deplore their policies and their techniques and their behaviors, um, but but that that was a major focus of the Summit for Democracy, and I think we need to live by the everlasting principles of someone like Abraham Lincoln, who said. One key to democracy is we all must live political lives grounded in malice towards none and charity for all. I know it's a high it's a high ask, but I think that's one thing every citizen can do. You know, we're just getting down to the end of the hour. Uh, one of the things that I drew from those six principles that you talked about was uh, the need for pro-democracy forces to unite uh, have to leave it shortly uh, but <laughs> it comes back you know it comes back again to that that old principle of the left and the center uniting uh, the old uh, a, po- a popular or united front uh, against authoritarianism against fascism so Eli Merritt I want to thank you very much for your time today your knowledge your learning and uh, Hope to have you back again, so thank you very much. I want to thank Chuck and Jade helping with this program, as always. Couldn't do it without them. Couldn't do it without you, our listeners and supporters of WORT. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week.